What's up? Welcome to the Confluence VC podcast. This podcast is meant to give you a personal glimpse into the next era of investors and operators. This week, we had on Phil Nadell from Forefront Venture Partners, which is one of the largest and most successful syndicates on AngelList. Phil's also the host of a popular podcast called The Pitch, and his partner is also an investor on Shark Tank. Their syndicate focuses on backing revenue-generating companies that they have a deep conviction in. In this talk, we discuss distribution advantages, prioritizing diligence to protect your reputation, and how the syndicate game has changed over the past 10 years. All right, before jumping into the episode, we have a quick message from our sponsor. Affinity is changing the way VCs manage relationships and increasing their deal flow in the process. By aggregating the data exhaust produced by daily interactions and communications, it analyzes it with machine learning and then delivers up-to-the-minute insights into professional relationships, which in turn unlocks new introductions to key decision makers, which also gives you a holistic view of your team's networks. Affinity works with over 1,600 investment firms across venture capital, investment banking, private equity, and consulting, where sales are more personal, collaborative, and driven by relationships. To learn more, you can check out all of the things they have to offer at affinity.co backslash Confluence VC. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care, and we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com wonder. Everyone, welcome to the Confluence VC podcast. We are appreciative of you all hanging out with us. Today we have someone on our podcast who, for me, and I believe Clay as well, is almost a little bit awestruck, starstrucking or awe-creating because they founded and do some really, really cool things. One being some things with Shark Tank, which is the reason that most people can even understand that venture capital is a thing, (laughs) and The Pitch, which is an incredible, incredible platform as well. That being said, would love to welcome Phil Nadell. Forefront Venture Partners, one of the leading syndicates, and who's also doing some really cool, fun stuff as well. And uh, maybe give him, you know, one to two minutes to tell us about himself and what he's building. Thanks, Tyler. Great to be with you and appreciate that very nice introduction. Just in terms of my background, like a lot of VCs, I started as a founder, an entrepreneur. I've been an entrepreneur my whole life. Um, always proud to say I've never worked for anyone else, just myself. Founded a bunch of companies, including some, some in the financial services business and the publishing business. And after exiting from the last company, I found that a lot of like relatives and friends were asking me for help with their startups, asking for investment, asking for advice. And I helped them and, and it worked out well. I made small investments and I gave them input and advice. It worked out well. And, and that I sort of expanded that beyond just friends and family to other people I knew. And then eventually that led to just investing in all kinds of companies that led to my 
full-time being a, a VC investor, and that was about 15 years ago. So I've been doing this for for a while, but started out uh, as a founder and, and serial entrepreneur. That is awesome, man. Mind telling us what maybe inspired you to get to this existing path? And like coming from your background, you could have done so much. What made you decide to partner with Barbara instead of being private like most people? Which when yeah, I that's say a good, that's tech- a good question. I mean, for me, I I'm just like so in love with entrepreneurship and 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 starting companies like startups. That's just my life, you know. And so I did it myself, and for so many years. And I really wanted to help companies and help founders start their companies. And so it felt good to to do that for friends and family. And then it started to expand beyond that. And I really liked that role where I wasn't, you know, focused on the same problems, the same company that I founded every single day, every minute of every day. I would go between different companies that I invested in and have access to and input into many different types of companies with lots of different interesting founders solving really challenging problems. So I felt that it was it, it was just more interesting for me to be helping and associated with more than one company, you know, instead of just my own company trying to help and play a role. Yeah, I'm really happy with our track record. We have a great return on our portfolio so far and we really have we've been so lucky so fortunate to invest in some great founders and some great companies that have really uh done some remarkable things so i I just feel so so blessed and so lucky most definitely i mean on top of talking maybe about the returns or some of the companies can you give us a maybe uh quick overview of Forefront, what it is today and what's, what it's evolving into. I think yeah. that'd be good. Yeah, yeah, sure. So Forefront, we basically have two investing entities through AngelList. We operate exclusively through AngelList. So about nine years ago, I founded the, the syndicate, Forefront Venture Partners, and that's become one of the largest and most active syndicates on AngelList. And, and as I said, we've built up a great track record. And then earlier this year, when AngelList introduced this rolling fund uh, feature, we launched a small rolling fund. So we have that investment vehicle as well. And, you know, we can talk about, if you want to, the di- differences between a syndicate and a fund, but, but those are the two different entities. So the, the syndicate's been around for a while, about nine years, and the fund is just new. Gotcha. Yeah, I would love to dive into the impact you felt or you feel and have felt that Angelus has had on the space and uh, maybe use that to pivot into your thoughts on capital becoming commoditized in the space. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, you know, Angelus has done just an incredible job at giving accredited investors access to deals, giving uh, startups access to capital. It's really democratizing the venture capital space in a big way. They've built a great platform. They keep rolling out new features to make it easier for companies to raise, to make it easier for investors to to invest, and and also making it easy for companies like ours 
to, to share deal flow and to syndicate. So AngelList has been great. It's just, I just think it's a really good platform and we've had a good experience there. In terms of the other question that you asked about capital becoming commoditized, you, you know, it definitely has like to a large degree. And, you know, to me, the, the most important thing when investing is, is how can we add value beyond the capital, right? If capital is commoditized and, and startups can get capital from lots and lots of different sources, then why do they need us? Startups like us to invest in them because we add value through our syndicate network, through our investor network. And that value comes mostly in the form of like customer referrals. It also, I guess, secondarily would be helping them acquire talent, hire the right people. But the first, the number one thing is referring customers to them. We, I mean, our syndicate members have made a, a dramatic impact on some of our portfolio companies just by referring some big customers. And that's huge for a startup. And then when they're trying to hire, we help them with, you know, our network helps them to, to find the right people. And then also, I guess the third thing would be when they go to raise more money, we'll help them with that, either connecting them with the right lead investors, investing ourselves, the whole thing. From a startup's perspective, that's part of it. From an investor perspective, what's happened with capital being commoditized is that access to deals isn't enough anymore. Like an, an AngelList has made access so much easier to, to deals for accredited investors, but that's not enough. I think what smart investors want is not just access, but it's curation, right? They want a syndicate lead like us to do the hard work, to do the thinking for to help them with that process of curating, of not just finding the deals and giving them access to deals, but doing the due diligence and all of the work that's involved with that and trying to make sure that when we invest, we're taking our best shot. We're not just throwing a bunch of stuff up against the wall and hoping it sticks, right? We're really curating and trying to identify those investments that are most likely to succeed. And that's why we don't invest in a lot of deals. We may be due like 10 or maybe between eight and 12 a year. That's about it. Because we're very careful. We take a long time and do a lot of due diligence, even at this early investment stage, in, in trying to give our investors in our network that, that curation and really give them the best shot. And that's why we've built up a great track record. So it's beyond just access at this point, I would say. Is that, does that kind of answer your question? Yeah, it does. I would also like to point out that the advantages that you all have, and you were humble in what you spoke on. I think there are some other advantages in which is you all actually do have the key of distribution in regards to brand and in regards to being able to help your companies. Like, your partner and you, through the social platforms you've created, actually have advantages that most people cannot replicate. You can replicate a lot of corporate relationships. You can replicate 
having access to a large pool of capital, or even in some ways due diligence, right? Like you can maybe hire for that, but you can't replicate a culture shifting, authentic buy-in from a scaled community. You want to talk a little bit about that? In terms of the, you know, the distribution and the access that we have. Yeah. I mean, you're, you're right. We, we have certain advantages and you mentioned earlier, the pitch uh, podcast, which has been a great, you know, platform for us and for me to meet not only a lot of um, great startups that we've invested in, but also as a way to get access to more syndicate members, more investors. So we've been fortunate to be a part of the pitch and, and a lot of investors in our syndicate have found us through that. And I think like what's nice also about that is that you've listened to it. So you know, probably, or have a good sense of what my investment process is like and what my criteria is like. And so people who listen to the pitch and then join our syndicate, they know what they're getting by investing with us. They, they understand the process before I even say a word to them, before they even see the first deal. And so I think, they're, I think that's an advantage because they're going in with some knowledge about what they're getting into when they're investing. I think that's helpful. And that's one of the reasons I like being on the pitch is that it, it as a showcase for my process and my criteria. And I think like in that sense, it's helpful, but it does help. Absolutely. You're right with distribution and access to deals. We've invested in several deals from the pitch that have been really successes and, and big winners. And so that's been great. And of course, met a lot of investors because there's wide distribution of the podcast. And it's funny because when I started doing this show, when, when we first launched it, it was an independent show. And then it got purchased by Gimlet Media, and then Gimlet Media got purchased by Spotify. So the distribution kept getting amplified. Magnified. Uh, yeah, that's awesome. Yeah, yeah. So it's been it's been great. Yeah, you a few moments ago you spoke about your process and criteria. I would love to know what your criteria are for entrepreneurs who might see this, and then from there maybe walk us through your due diligence process. One for the founders, but also for people who participate in your in your syndicates, because I find that a lot of syndicates don't do enough diligence. So hearing someone who goes deep is very, very refreshing. Well, you're you're preaching to the choir now because you know my big like pet peeve with syndicates with most syndicates on AngelList is or anywhere is that they they don't do any diligence. They do all, or almost none. You know, they get a deal that a VC is leading the round on and they just share it with the syndicate without doing any due diligence. So, I mean, to, again, it's not just about access for us. We do intensive due diligence. And our reputation is on the line with every investment we make that we share with our syndicate. And we're not going to put our name on it. We're not going to invest in it until we've done exhaustive due diligence and the company passes with, with flying colors. So again, it's about access plus curation for us. And most syndicates are not that way. That's a, to me, that's like the, the number one differentiator that we don't put our name on until we do a lot of due diligence. And to talk about the process a little bit that we go through and our criteria, I mean, the number one thing for us, or, or the, not number one, but the first like criterion 
is that we only invest in post-revenue companies. And so that's a big thing in terms of reducing risk. And when a company hasn't made its first sale yet, all the everything they tell you is just speculation, right? I mean, everything, it's all speculation until they make that first sale. And I think once a company is starting to sell and they're seeing some positive like signs that there's product market fit, things change and the investment risk is significantly reduced. Now, you could argue that, yes, that's true, but you pay a higher valuation. While that may be true, the offset is well worth it in my mind. In other words, the reduction in risk uh, way outweighs the small increase in valuation that we might end up paying. That's a really important point for us. It has to be post-revenue and not just like a few pilots. It's got to be some customers who are really using it. But more profoundly, like we, we look for really good founding teams who have all the disciplines covered, or most of them, you know, sales, technical, all of the different disciplines, not just a 100% technical team, 100% sales team. And what they're doing is solving like for a real pain point in the market, something that they've experienced preferably, something that they've lived, and that they're solving a real pain point for their customers. And they're doing it in some kind of a unique or differentiated way, some smart way that they're doing it that other companies aren't. So they're attacking a real pain point. It's got to be a large addressable market. And they're doing that in a smart, differentiated way with a well-rounded team. So those, I've touched on a number of points there. And those are all important in our process. If, if they're not solving a real pain point, if, if it's a kind of something that's nice to have, but not something really important, we're not going to be the right investor. Or if they're solving a real pain point, but, but for a very, very small addressable market, we're not the right investor. And then in terms of due diligence, we're very much focused on financial projections and the analytics. And you might say, well, Phil, why do you focus on projections? They're always wrong. Right. Financial projections are never right. But the reason we do is we're trying to understand how the founders look at the company and, and its potential growth path. Right. So what is what are the drivers to that growth and what are their assumptions? Are those assumptions based in reality? Are they based on some kind of historical performance? Are they based on industry norms? Or are they just pie in the sky numbers that are pulling out of the air? And we, so that's why we look at projections. And then we look at, at all of the KPIs, all of the analytics we can, even though they're at an early stage. What does it cost them to acquire a customer? What's the projected lifetime value? What's the churn to date? You know, what's the CAC payback period? All of these things that we're trying to understand to, to try to determine do they have product market fit, at least at the beginning stages, have they identified some efficient, scalable customer acquisition channels? Like, have they identified ways to acquire customers 
that are going to be cost efficient that they can scale. Because what we want to do when we invest is just to pour fuel on the fire, right? So if they've identified ways to acquire lots of customers in a, at a reasonable CAC payback period, great. We want to invest and pour more fuel on that fire to get more and more customers. Quick question. What is a reasonable CAC payback period in your eyes? Depends on the type of business, whether it's sort of B2B or B2C, but we really look for less than a year. And in some cases, much shorter than that, like less than six months. So it depends. A lot of businesses, like a SaaS business, where you'll have a much higher LTV, it, it could be a longer CAC payback period, where you have a longer lifetime for the, for the customer. If it's a consumer brand and they're selling one-off products online, it's got to be on the first sale, obviously. And they've got to have a nice margin on that first sale, not just pay back the CAC. So it depends on the type of business, but we like to really keep an eye on that. And it should always be less than a year. Got it. That's great. I, I really appreciate you breaking down how different categories have different payback peers that are required for different product types. Okay. So I have like 50 more questions, but I, both me and Clay are very respectful of your time. So before we transition into our quick fire questions, two things, one, Feel free to ask me and Clay anything in the world about anything in the world. And two, if there's anything else you want to speak on, go for it. One thing I would mention for your listeners that I think is important. A lot of VCs don't welcome cold outreach. And that I think that's a shame. And we do uh, welcome cold outreach. So if listeners are startup founders and they're post-revenue, and they're looking for, to raise capital, feel free to reach out to us. We're happy to, um, we're happy to, to take a look at, at their deals. Forefrontvp.com is the website. They can submit it there or contact me on LinkedIn or whatever. So I think that's something I just I like to point out from time to time because a lot of times founders are reluctant to approach VCs cold because they've heard that it's not, not a good idea. So that, yeah. you know, I want to point that out. Yeah, that's how we made this happen. I reached out to you cold. You were nice enough to respond. So yeah, this is a you know, result of cold outreach. Yeah, well, there you go. There you go. We try to respond to everyone. And look, the, the flip side of that is don't reach out to us. Like if you take the time to go to the website and look at our criteria. And if you don't meet the criteria, don't bother. If you're pre-revenue, just hold off until your post revenue, because we're just going to say no at this stage. So it'd be respectful. If you don't meet the criteria, then don't, don't reach out. But otherwise, if you do, then sure, please do. And I'm sure glad that, that you did Clay. So yeah, we try to respond to, to, to everyone. It's not always easy, but yeah. Yeah, no, hundred percent. I had one other operational question. I should have asked it earlier, but obviously you've seen a lot of syndicates pop up. Very few have been able to raise a rolling fund on top of that. You all have been able to do that. I'm curious what the thought process was on your end from transitioning from one to the other, even though you're still running both simultaneously, but like, just curious what the thought process was when you decided to launch the, the rolling fund on top of the syndicate? Yeah, that's a really smart question. So the, the reason why the rolling fund, let me start off by saying that we are 
we're exclusively focused on being like a syndicate and a rolling fund. Like we don't do anything. We don't make investments outside of our syndicate network, right? A lot of syndicates do. They do their, they, they see the syndicate as like just a side thing. For us, it's 100% of what we do. So what we found is we, you know, in all these years of running the syndicate, we found that there are some deals, some companies that, that we aren't able to syndicate for a few reasons. Number one, the deal's closing too quickly. If it's closing in a few days or a week, we don't have time to syndicate it. Number two, there's not enough allocation uh, available in the deal. That's another one. So it, when we can't syndicate it in the past, we've had to pass on those deals. But with a rolling fund, we can make those inve- we can make investments in those companies even if we can't syndicate. So that was one reason. And then the other thing is that a lot of our syndicate members, like a lot of people, are just so busy that they end up missing some of the deals we syndicate. Like they just overlook them. And with the rolling fund, it puts the investments on autopilot, right? Every company we syndicate, we try to also do through the fund. So they get access to every deal without having to worry about missing it or not. And that also leads into diversification. And we're big believers in, in having a diversified portfolio. And by investing in the rolling fund, you make sure you get access to all the deals and that leads to a more diversified portfolio. So it was, the, and then I guess the other thing to, to mention is that there are some companies that don't want to syndicate because they don't know for sure how much money is going to be raised. Like they can allocate a certain amount to us, but they need to know that it'll be filled. And we can't guarantee that with the syndicate, but with the fund, we can. So those are some of the reasons, some of the differences. No, that totally makes sense. We run a small syndicate ourselves and like that educational piece of just like telling founders, yeah, we can potentially pencil in this much. Like we can't promise it. Like it's required a little bit of intervention on our part to just like teach them the basics of how syndicates work. Yeah. Um, Yeah. That's hard, isn't it? Yeah. yeah, It's a little awkward. Like, yeah, like we would, if it was our money and ran a fund ourselves, like we would love to commit this much today, but we just can't say for certainty that's going to be the case. That's right. Well, what I always say is, look, we've syndicated 86 companies or whatever it is, and I have a pretty good sense of what the the range is. It's a half a million to a million is what we typically raise. So I have a pretty good sense from doing so many deals, but I can't ever guarantee it. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah, sometimes the deals you think will be the best just don't do. And the opposite is true as well. I know. I've experienced the same thing, Clay. Same thing where I'm like, oh my gosh, this is such a, you know, this, I love, I first, I love every company that we invest in or I wouldn't invest in them, but some I just think are going to do better through the syndicate and some worse. And you just never know. Yeah. It's crazy. We're like still figuring it out. We've only done a handful. So we're trying to gather better data to then share with future companies. But yeah, it's a learning experience. Yeah. Well, cool. You want to jump into quick fire here, Phil? Yeah, fire away. Cool. So we do these at the end. We've got five questions meant to be answered in two sentences or less. First one we've got is what is a recommendation you hear regularly that you think is bad advice? Portfolio concentration. A lot of people say that's the way to go to 
take advantage of the big winners, but we're big believers in portfolio theory and having a diversified portfolio, not the concentrated one. Totally agree. Totally agree with that. Next one in the last year, what new belief, behavior, or habit has most improved your life? More founders are now open to meeting online. We're not located in New York City or the Bay Area. So we've always had meetings via Zoom, but now it's more widely accepted as the norm. Where are you guys? We're in South Florida. We're in South Florida. Boca Raton. Okay. I'm in Miami right now. Uh, oh, cool. Yeah. I've uh, spent a lot of time down here over the past year or so. Falling yep. in love with South Florida might make it a permanent home. Especially this time of year, it's becoming even more attractive when it gets cold up north, you know? I know. I know. That's my only issue right now. I feel like it's time to... But let's see. Next one we've got, aside from having to say no all the time, what's the worst part about venture? The worst part is, well, this, having to say no is bad, but deciding between the yeses is even more challenging for me. When there are deals that we love and we can't invest in all of them, having to decide between those is really challenging. From a personal standpoint, the other hard part about it is just being on 24-7. You know, I'm, I do this 24-7, so that's the other hard part. Yeah, I feel like being responsive all day long, all week yeah. long, like eventually takes a toll. I'm trying to do a better job of that myself. Yeah, that's one of the main reasons I have no hair left. Let's see, next one, best piece of advice for junior VCs or those aspiring to break into venture? Yeah, I hear from people all the time who want to break into venture. And my advice is work at a startup first, your own or someone else's. The experience you get will help tremendously as a VC investor, and it will help you to build your network, which will help you as an investor. So work at a startup first is my advice. I feel like that just gives you the flexibility to run experiments, learn other smart people, network. I told I mean, like Tyler and I both started our careers in venture. I'm, I'm grateful that we did. Now we've, we've taken the opposite approach and now we're both working in the startup world. Um, we're also building confidence. I feel like I've learned a ton, like speaking for myself here, I feel like on the operator side over the past 18 or so months, I've learned at least twice as much as I did on the investment side. Yeah, yeah, it's really invaluable. And then last question we have is who's a mentor of yours that you'd want to give credit to? From a business perspective, my father was my mentor. He, we were in business together as partners for many years. He taught me a lot, but more current, more recently, I would say, or I guess since getting into venture uh, capital, my, my wife is my sounding board. So I wouldn't say she's my mentor, but she's my sounding board. I, when we have dinner together, I share some of the companies that I'm looking at and she's a great sounding board. Because it's like, I'm right brain, she's left brain. We're totally like opposite in some ways. So I get a completely different perspective from her on the deals. I'm looking at them one way and then I get her perspective. It's super helpful. So I, not my dad's the, the mentor, but my wife has really been a great like sort of sounding board and a voice of reason on some of these. Love that. Yeah, I feel like a smart, supporting family 
is just a competitive advantage in any field. I mean, yeah. especially if you can talk business with them, get their thoughts on it, from like an outsider's perspective. Yeah, yeah. And my two boys are are great at that too. My my older son, Jeff, is a founder of, of a company called the Sure Health. And and he's a great, really great sounding board too, as well as my younger son, Matt. So yeah, I mean, it's great. I agree with you. It's great to have a supportive family who who really takes like your request for input seriously. Absolutely. Well, cool. I think that wraps it up on my end. Any other last questions for us? Anything else we missed that you want to talk about a little bit more? If not, I feel like we got a ton of gems already from this. It's been super helpful for us. Anything else that you think I'm missing? No, no. Look, I appreciate the opportunity to talk with you guys. And I'm happy to, to speak with any of your listeners who are interested in investing with us. Again, I, I think I mentioned ForefrontVP.com or anyone who wants to invest in the fund or any startup founders who are looking to raise. I'm happy to, to speak with any of them. No, I appreciate the opportunity to talk with you guys. And, and you really asked some good questions. Thanks so much for having me. I appreciate it, guys. Thanks, Phil. For next steps, if each of you have not submitted your info to become a member yet, you can do that through our website at www.confluence.bc. And also, if you want to become a subscriber to the newsletter, we offer a ton of free resources in there each and every week meant to help you become better at your individual roles. You can subscribe there at www.confluence.substack.com. Hope that helps. Hope to hear from you all soon.